In an instant, the life of today's guest changed. She had an entire plan for herself and what a plan it was. But again, in an instant, it was gone. It was changed forever. Hello, everyone. I'm Pamela Brewer, welcoming you to this edition of Mind Talk and very pleased to introduce you to today's guest, Dr. Donna R. Walton, who is the author of Shattered Dreams, Broken Pieces. She's an educator and a survivor of life-threatening bone cancer. Dr. Walton, welcome to Mind Talk. Thank you very much. Dr. Walton, as you begin your story, it starts on a cold day in January of 1976, a day that is just seems like it's etched in your brain for reasons that you are about to share with us. Yes, that was a very pivotal day um, for me as it changed my life forever. Uh, it was a cold for today in Washington, D.C. in 1976, and I boarded a metro bus. And that day, my leg, my left leg, uh, actually cracked in two. And that was the moment, the defining moment, that my diagnosis of bone cancer became a reality, and I would have to move forward to have my leg amputated. And I will never forget that day because of the sounds that were made on the bus um, mainly by the bus driver. I'll never forget his sound when he says, how could this be happening on my route? Not on my route. And it's so interesting that that, that really was, stands out in my mind. The other thing that really stands out in my mind is the sound of people's voices, that, that pitiful sound that sounds like uh, tap shoes or you know, pigeons, you know, the, the sound. It was the, pity of, the pitiful sound of something like this could be happening to me. Let's just back up a second because you're saying something that I that you know I think it's important for the listener to really hear. You said that your leg broke in half. Are you literally that is saying correct. are you literally saying your leg broke in half? Yes, I'm literally saying that my femur uh, between the the femur bone actually broke in half. So uh, they called it a compound fracture at the time. So the tumor that was in my bone was so large, and of course the calcium, it had sort of eaten the calcium away over the years because I did not, when I first received my diagnosis in uh, October actually of 1975, and that's why my story is, is very compelling, because when I received my diagnosis, I did not uh, do anything about it, my family and I went into denial. So over time, from October 75 to uh, January 1976, this cancer had a, t- had a very long chance or time to grow, and as a result, was in my leg. So when I stepped onto the Metro bus that day, the, the, the weight, the calcium, there was, there was nothing, and so the leg actually broke in half. All right. Well, I I know that there are people who are even now aghast as they hear your description of what happened that day and further aghast when they hear the bus driver's response, not, oh, my goodness, can I help you? But, oh, my goodness, not on my route. Why me? That's extraordinary. (laughs) 
It was extraordinary. And, you know, it's so interesting how that stays in my mind. And I think, uh, you know, I think it was, it was so powerful because I, I'm pretty sure I went into shock. But that was, the, that was it was that defining moment of his, of, his, of his voice, of those words, that I think also helped sort of puts in context of my life in living with a, 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 as a person living with a disability, if you will. Um, it's kind of like you get that kind of response from people in an in a, in a indirect way that says, oh, you know, how could you be disabled? Or, you know, you have a disability. I mean, it's, it's the way people are treated uh, with disabilities. Is if, you know, not, you know, I don't want you around me or this couldn't be happening to you around me or, you know, my relationship with you. It, it kind of comes in all kinds of phases discrimination being the main point um, of how people with disabilities are treated. So even though I didn't know all of that then, uh, I couldn't process it that way then, I think his comment was very telling for my experiences in uh, living with a, uh, a disability. Uh, it, it sounds like you're saying that people are annoyed with you that you have the disability. Absolutely. You know, here, here's the thing. It's... When I first lost my leg was in 1976, and I was 18 years old. And the idea that uh, a young person could, you know, be an amputee was just not very common. You, you did not see this, and you, and you definitely didn't see it. Um, if you if you did see, I know my encounter with a, a person with one leg was I called him. We called him One Legged Steve, and he went to junior high school, and that was my first exposure to a person with, um, with a person with one leg. And so you, you really don't see people with disabilities. And you typically, in our society, the way a person looks is really how people define you. So the fact that I show up in my life, relatively attractive woman, vibrant, um, is if I can't, you know, they, that, that disability and, and beauty, if you will, can't coexist. So you're always getting that, I can't believe you're a person with a disability, because it's as if those two things can't exist in one person, which, which is, I'm jumping ahead a bit, but that's one of the sort of uh, motivations for me uh, creating a company or a project called the Divas with Disabilities Project to show that the portrayal of what disability really looks like, the imagery and portrayal of women with, of color with disabilities to just show, really show society that, you know, what disability looks like. So we have these women from all around the country showing up unapologetically, beautiful, using canes, crutches, wheelchairs, uh, doing phenomenal things. They're actors, dancers, leaders in our communities. So, um, yeah, it, it's, it's really just kind of interesting how – Women in particular are perceived with uh, disability. Well, and, and certainly you're right. I mean, women are uh, seen, uh, are perceived as though if they are not physically beautiful to the eye of the beholder, then there's something missing in them, then there's something lacking in them. Uh, and, and it's easy, certainly as a youngster of 18, for you to get caught up in that fear that not only was your life different, but it was you were no longer attractive and you're gorgeous. And but but it's easy to imagine that you would think you no longer were attractive 
and would not be attractive to anyone in any way. But I want to step back a little bit. You say that the the, your leg broke in January of 76, but you actually got information about what was going on in your body in October of 75. So talk about that is correct. What happened? So interestingly, I was attending the American University. I was an undergraduate. And um, this particular day was a beautiful day. The sky was blue. I mean, it was just a gorgeous day, not a cloud in the sky. And so my friend and I, Evelyn Exum, she was my dorm mate, uh, and I decided that we were going to go to, at the time, it was a premier mall, Tyson's Corner, to shop. And one of our friends lent his car to us, um, beautiful Mustang. i never forget, it was a teal-colored Mustang. And we were going to have a great day. But before we took this journey, I decided that I wanted to check out my leg because I was having a lot of pain in my knee. But I thought the pain was a result of me playing tennis and being active. Um, so, I, But it was a nagging pain. It was just this um, uh, an ache. I could, I could describe it as an ache in your knee that you could think that you could soothe with Bengay or some type of salve, you know, some type of warming salve that would just give you comfort, but that didn't work. So on this particular day, we decided that we would go to check it out. I said, well, you know, before we go to this wonderful mall, let me go check out this knee. Let me go check out my leg. And uh, we thought, I mean, I thought there's just going to be with just that. I go to check out the leg, get an x-ray, and it's just going to be something simple, and we keep it moving. Well, that was not the case. stepped into Sibley Hospital, and uh, I remember, uh, you know, being taken right away, having an x-ray, and then it was interesting because after I had the x-ray of the leg, uh, I was given a wheelchair, and I was like, wow, this is a great hospital. They, they wheel you around, you know, and they took me to get a chest x-ray, and I thought, wow, they're very comprehensive here. They're doing everything, chest still didn't dawn on me until we went into the um, the room, and I remember it was it was extremely quiet. Uh, you could hear the sort of ventilators or the the air conditioning system uh, making sounds. And the doctor came into the room, and at the time I was actually 17 years old, and so he had all this information, but he he conveyed it to me in a way. I'm assuming because my mom was not there or no one was there. Uh, an adult was there to hear this information, so he conveyed it to me. He put this X-ray on 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 this on the light uh, so that I could see it. Um, and he said, uh, "Well, do you?" Um, he says, "Well, I got some news." He says, "We found you have something in your leg." It's and, and I said, "Well, that sounds good. I mean, what is it?" And he said, "Well, it's a growth." I said, "Oh, no problem. Just take it out." He said, "Well, it's not that simple." And then he started giving me sort of this, this sort of story about um, Edward Kennedy Jr. 
about him being a skier and uh, skiing with one leg. And I, that was the pivotal moment of getting the diagnosis indirectly um, that something was not really good. So we got the diagnosis, and uh, my mom showed up. We got the diagnosis, and we went into denial. I mean, at that point, we went into denial. With a, I think that they, I was given one Librium and uh, sent out or sent away to make a decision to have the biopsy, and I did not. Uh, my mom at the time was a devout Pentecostal, and her faith and her uh, belief about um, where God stood in, the, in this whole plan was that there was no leg that, you know, no leg was going to be removed. And so I, being, of course, a faith uh, follower of my mom's belief, believed the same thing. Uh, I didn't want to believe that I was going to lose a leg. So from October 75, I kept on stepping and dancing, going to work, doing, doing my thing with this pain um, until I was pulled up on uh, January 1976 on the bus. Now, you've just said that you kept it moving, you were dancing, you were doing everything. So I think about everything. the pain you must have been in as you were dancing. It was painful. It was painful. Um, but, you know, you have a way of, you know, I think you have a way of just being in denial because the, the pain that that I was experiencing was less than the pain that I knew I would experience about losing my leg. I couldn't even fathom that. I mean, that was, that was even more painful to even imagine uh, of what that diagnosis would look like for me. Um, of the, and, and the imagery of the one-legged, you know, man, Steve, uh, just that's all I, I would see. I, I didn't, we didn't know at the time that it was cancer because the word cancer was not used. Now, I do believe, even to this day, that my mom uh, was told that it was cancer, but she never, we never mentioned the word cancer. It was always a growth. Um, and so we just kept going along our way in the pain that I was enduring, which I think kind of contributes to the strength that I have today around pain, um, what both emotionally it? and physically. Let's assume that your mother was told um, that the growth was actually cancerous. What was your mother's thought about what treatments, if any, you needed to, to deal with the pain? Did she have any recommendations or thoughts for you in that regard? Well, you know, at the time, we, well, okay, so the answer to that is there was Ben Gay. That was what we knew that, would, that sort of gave me relief, and, we, and she would wrap my leg. We wrapped it in an ACE bandage. Uh, that, was, that was her remedy. At, but... Her remedy was to have the, the uh, parishioners, the brothers and sisters, come to our home and actually go, we would go into major prayer. Um, we had prayer revivals, I remember. Uh, and and it, like I said, with the Pentecostal faith, it's, it's either about, you know, the devil or God. And, you know, my mom was definitely on the God side. So everything around us had to be cleansed of anything that was of the world, if you will. So her healing for me and, and, and relieving me of my pain would be to remove all of those things that were of the devil um, because that was spirit, that was more of the pain, not, not the cancer. And so what were the things that were removed that were considered to be of the world? Well, that's, that's a great question because that was, I remember laying in the bed 
and there were, I had all kinds of posters. Oh, my goodness. It was wonderful. I had these wonderful, all the, you know, the Jackson 5 posters and, you know, all of my favorite artists um, on my walls. Um, and then I also had, they were removed. Um, I remember having fingernail polish on my hands, on my fingers, and that was removed. Um, anything that was of the world in my in my in my space, that space became totally cleansed of anything worldly. But the main thing that stands out was definitely those posters on my wall. I mean, you know, as a teenager, you you know, your your those celebrities, those singers, they were your they were your idols. I mean, I, I wasn't advanced spiritually enough to understand. Uh, or even want to understand, if you will, that Jackson, you know, Michael Jackson could be a devil, um, that that wasn't something that I should be able to worship. So everything that was of the world was definitely removed from my world and was considered like a healing. So I, I'm just thinking about this 17-year-old girl in her room. And, you know, for teenagers, your room is your... That's that's your space. That's your place. That's your space. That's mm-hmm. you. And I, I just think about the starkness of the room with everything removed that was for the any average teenage girl is something that's really important to them. Were you in accord with your mom that the removal of those things was a necessary component of your healing or were you annoyed that you had these things taken away? That's a very good question as well. I was in a uh, total uh, state of confusion because on the one hand, I had to, I always respect my mom, respected my mom, and believed that whatever she said would be right. And I didn't have a lot, I wasn't a defiant child. Um, so I, I did not believe in talking back and, and doing anything that would cause her to, caused myself to be disrespectful to her. Um, But on the other hand, I was extremely bothered because I didn't didn't understand the power of God and the the power of God's healing. I didn't understand that aspect. So I I was very, um, I I would say, I would say annoyed could be a good word um, at the fact that all of these things were happening around me, but I didn't think that they were important. I didn't think they were important enough uh, that they were going to be healing me. I, I really didn't really buy into, well, I, I did want to buy into that they would help my leg. I could keep my leg. But I, I, like I said, more confused because I, I didn't understand how that was going to work. You know, was Jesus going to come down and actually, uh, you know, heal my leg, then I was going to be able to walk. So it's October 75, just to give you an idea, October 75, we got the diagnosis. And I went on stepping and doing what I had to do. Uh, So just dealing with pain at that point, uh, was able to walk on my leg. Um, Then, of course, in October, I'm sorry, uh, January of 1976, the leg broke, went into uh, the hospital, of course. They put the leg in a cast um, to, because I had to have a biopsy. That's what I had to biopsy. And then from that point, we were to go to NIH. Well, 
We made it to NIH after the biopsy. I'm sorry, the National Institutes of Health. The National Institutes of Health, I apologize, in, in Bethesda, Maryland. That is correct. Yes. So the National Institutes of Health at the time was studying my form of cancer, which is osteogenic sarcoma. And so the, the doctors at George Washington University uh, referred me to that particular program because they knew that they were studying that particular cancer. And so that was, that was a, a, a very a, a pivotal moment as well because if you can understand the cost of medical care, um, the cost of medical uh, you know, surgery and everything around that, my family certainly wasn't in a position to afford that. So to have this program, the, the National Institutes of Health program to, to study this cancer, and I could be a part of that research program was, was a blessing. Um, so we went to, we, we made it to, NIH, to the NIH and uh, was in preparation to have this amputation. When my mother went into uh, a crisis, I, I, I would call it a, a crisis because um, she decided that there was not going to be an amputation, that again, God was going to heal my leg. Um, and so removed me, asked me to be sent home. So we returned to my apartment in southeast Washington, D.C. to now go through a, another aspect of what I think um, of healing or uh, resolve or, you know, it, a lot of things happened in that apartment. Um, and so now I'm laying in my bed with a fractured well, or broken leg with the, now it's in a cast and so while I, lay, while I lay in the bed with this cast I am totally immobilized um, so the only thing I could do is take in what everyone else was doing around me and I would say that that was a moment when God and I started to have a relationship I started to develop my own relationship with God um, and this is when my whole um, outlook, if you will, and decision to return to the NIH in March of 1976 to have the amputation uh, was my decision. So I moved away from my mom because it was becoming unbearable. And I realized that God's plan, doing my own internal um, relationship and, and prayer, my own prayer revival, as I call it, I learned and came to, to terms with the fact that it really wasn't about saving the leg. It was about saving my life. And that's why I'm here to speak with you 41 years later, post-surgery, post-amputation, you know, to talk about my story. You know, I mean, and in fact, when I think about being at the station, even the people around me never made my issue a leg. I mean, never made my leg an issue. I mean, and when I say make my leg an issue, meaning no one ever asked me what happened to you. Um, I think I think Kathy Hughes and I had a conversation about it, but I, I don't remember it being a lingering conversation. I think she, I, I may have even admitted to her what happened. And I don't, I don't even remember if she even asked me what happened. So I, that was one place that I had, I, it was a refuge. That radio station was a refuge for me because no one looked at me walking with a cane and walking with a limp. They came in and treated me like, okay, you got a job to do. And that was, that's what we want all persons with disabilities to be respected by, 
the job that they can do, their abilities and not their disabilities. Right. Uh, indebted to um, Kathy Hughes, who is now, she's the owner of, of TV One and, and uh, the president and CEO of TV One and other uh, radio stations, the first black woman who to own um, these radio stations. And she, at the time, was the... Um, main proprietor of WOL Radio uh, in Washington, D.C., and she gave me an opportunity to be an intern, um, to be a part of the station. Um, when I thought I had been getting all of these messages that I, that I, you know, I was going to fail at what I was trying to do because I wanted to be a star. You know, my, my passion was to uh, become a movie star, to act, to sing, to dance, and so at this time, you know, I'm trying to define who I was, but I was getting a lot of messages that I wasn't good enough, and my disability was getting in the way of me having opportunities. Uh, but Kathy Hughes uh, allowed me to be an intern at her radio station on Wisconsin Avenue, and she gave me the opportunity to be on the air. So I, I think that my life now, it's it's it's. It's uh, it's moving forward. I, I still have many things I want to accomplish. I, uh, I'm really fortunate at this point to get my dreams. I'll have my dreams come to be actualized in that I'm going to be moving – not moving. I'm going to be visiting uh, L.A. in the next week to uh, attend the Variety Entertainment um, Diversity Inclusion Summit, whereby there will be entertainers and individuals who are invested in um, – inclusion, and I get the chance to speak about uh, persons with disabilities, including persons with disabilities in acting roles, um, and not choosing a person who's not disabled, but why not choose a person with a disability, and particularly promoting uh, women of color, African-American women in particular, uh, who live with disabilities. Well, the Divas with Disabilities Project was created as a digital uh, platform to uh, show that uh, women of color are uh, well. They were they're absent, so there there weren't a lot of examples of women of color in society, and and those who were uh, living their lives were not getting a lot of attention. Uh, they're not in literature. They're not talked about in literature. You know that they weren't reflected in the media. And so this digital uh, campaign was to uh, bring together. Uh, memberships or members of women of color so they could coalesce and be empowered on this particular platform. And so we have guest speakers. We have, you know, um, uh, individuals uh, who come and speak about divas themselves, if you will. And a diva is, is, is defined as an empowered woman uh, with a physical disability. That is a diva. And I, we knew that the, I knew that the diva and disability could exist in one person. So we created the Divas with Disabilities Project to show that, to discredit and to amplify the voices of women of color with disabilities and for society to show that what disability really looks like. I think that was the main mission, is to show what disability looks like. That, uh, and we do that by promoting women of color through various media platforms. And the work of Leg Talk Incorporated, what is that? Well, Leg Talk started off, um, it stands for uh, 
Lessons of Empowerment for Achieving Goals and Greatness. And so the goal of Leg Talk is to go out into companies and to work with individuals to, to show them how to work and live passionately in the workforce and mainly um, to show them that, you know, if you don't get a pro- – just because you don't get a promotion don't mean that you're not worthy of one. So we teach, you know, lots of skills and, and provide training around disability awareness, of course, for the employers, but also for individuals. We teach them how to be resilient and, to, and tools to stay employed in the workplace and to advance in the workforce. How does one get more information? You talked about an online platform. Where do listeners go to learn more about what you've done and what you're doing and what you're going to do? Oh, that's that's a great question. So, if you want more information about Leg Talk, you can certainly go to uh, Leg Talk at l e g g t a l k dot com. If you want information more about the Divas with Disabilities Project, we're on Facebook, Twitter, um, and you can cer- certainly find that by just uh, searching the Divas with Disabilities Project or Divas with Disabilities. Such important work that you're doing. Thank you for joining us today and spending this time with us here on Mind Talk. And folks, thank you for joining us today for this edition of Mind Talk, which is brought to you daily as an educational public service. And it is not intended to replace any work that you might choose to do with a medical, mental health, or other professional. Mind Talk is produced by Jim Brown and 26 by 2 Communications. If you would like to be in touch with me directly, the email address is Pamela, P-A-M-E-L-A, at mindtalk, M-Y. I-N-D-T-A-L-K dot O-R-G. And remember, you can listen to Mind Talk at the Mind Talk website. You can download the Mind Talk app from either Google Play or iTunes. And remember also, if it's unacceptable, then it's unacceptable. You take care.